Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We are back after some time over the summer in the book of Ezra. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew, working our way uh, verse by verse through this great uh, gospel. And today is an amazing text because Matthew writes himself into the story. (laughs) This is Matthew recording his own call uh, from Christ to salvation and to becoming a disciple. And no doubt uh, that was uh, uniquely special to Matthew as he penned these words. I'm going to read the text for us. It's Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read last week's text and this week's text just to get the flow of thought here, uh, starting in Matthew 9, verse 1, going through verse 13. And again, this is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's bow our heads again together. Heavenly Father, I would ask that you would illuminate this text by your spirit that you would show us what this text means, that you would give us right insight. I pray that we would be appropriately challenged and encouraged by uh, this remarkable passage of the calling of Matthew. And God, I pray that you would encourage us uh, to see our own calling to salvation uh, through the actions that we observe here in our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember... What I just read from last week's text, we saw that Jesus claims authority, authority that only God possesses. It's the authority to forgive sins of anybody. He can forgive anyone's sins, and He does that by faith. And the Pharisees, of course, are offended by this. Uh, They don't think that Jesus is equal with God the Father, and so they think He's blaspheming by claiming to do what only God can do, which is forgive sin. And once Jesus is claiming here, which is what He has, authority to forgive sin, the very next story that you hear, today's text is Jesus continuing to put into practice this amazing uh, gift and authority that He has, which is if Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, then that tells you something about what He's going to do. He is going to gravitate towards the worst of the worst to give forgiveness to those who are broken in their sin, who know that they are lost in their sin, 
and who know that there is no way that they can save themselves. And Jesus is going to continue to show His power to save and forgive by spending time with tax collectors and with sinners. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you the uh, points here for the message. It's the message is called Jesus Calls Matthew the Tax Collector. Very simple outline for today. Uh, point number one, it's also on the screen. Uh, Jesus Calls Matthew. It's verse 9. Also in verse 9 is point number two, Matthew follows Jesus. And then point number three, Matthew invites his friends to meet Jesus. So point number one, Jesus calls Matthew. And if you remember uh, from last week, I showed you uh, this image here. Of, uh, you can see a satellite image of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River flowing uh, down from the Sea of Galilee. And the Jordan River also goes above the Sea of Galilee, a few miles north of that as well. And if you look at a map from the time period of Jesus, if you remember the Christmas story, the horrible King Herod the Great, uh, he was not really so, such a great man as he thought, but he was a king who reigned for many decades, and he was the one that sought to kill Jesus in his infancy. When he died around 4 B.C., uh, his kingdom was split between some of his sons. And you, you can spot one of Herod's sons when you find out that one of their names is, is Herod as well. <laughs> so they seem to all have the word Herod attached to another name, whether it's Herod Archelaus or Herod Philip or Herod Antipas. He put a Herod in all, all of his sons' names, it seems like. So they split up into tetrarchies, his, his kingdom. And what you'll notice is during the time of Jesus, uh, Herod Antipas had authority over what's called here Lower Galilee, which includes Capernaum, the city in which Jesus uh, is ministering. So where Matthew had his tax booth is right here. And what you would find is if people were traveling from Herod Philip's district uh, in the red there, if they're coming across the Jordan River and they're making their way into Herod Antipas territory, they would have to deal with certain tax collectors. And you might think of this something like a toll collector in modern language, although it's not identical to tolls. It included tolls for travel, uh, taxes on goods. It would include tax on fishing and animals that you might have and uh, all kinds of things. But you, if you're coming from Philip into Antipas' territory, the first major city you're going to find is Capernaum. And again, just so you can see, the Jordan River sort of snakes through right here, and people who are traveling in, uh, from that territory would come to Capernaum first, and they would meet Matthew at his tax booth the top lip of the Sea of Galilee. And again, this is the area in Capernaum where Matthew would have set up his tax booth. We don't know the exact spot, but we're told in Luke's gospel that Jesus was walking uh, along the, the Sea of Galilee and he came to Matthew's tax booth. So it was probably close to the shore. Uh, perhaps he was also, you know, it's interesting as, as you read about this, uh, I had to spend some time looking up Roman taxation laws, which is just not what I would normally want to do with my life, but it was important for the text. And so I thought, okay, I got to spend some time trying to understand how this works. And there's a decent argument to make uh, because of some inscriptions found on some ports around Asia Minor that uh, fishing, fish were taxed. When, when fish came in, uh, when fishermen brought in their, their catch, they could be taxed by people like Matthew. So it's not, I can't show you this in the text. I, I, will, I will tell you when I'm speculating. This is not straight from the Bible. This is a speculation based on the Bible, but it would not be uh, out of the question that Matthew would have had dealings with some of the disciples who were fishermen right here at Capernaum. Uh, he was a tax collector in Capernaum. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen from Capernaum. And so no doubt they would have known of each other. And it's even possible Matthew had taxed them for their fish. So you can imagine how this would have worked out as they become disciples together. Oh, it's, it's Matthew. Oh boy. So you can just imagine some of the tension that might have been building up here. It's even possible, again, I don't want to read beyond the text. I'm just giving you an educated guess. It's not inconceivable since tax collectors were known to uh, defraud people. It's not inconceivable that Matthew had defrauded some of these uh, other disciples. Again, I can't prove that from the text, but it's certainly at least a possibility. 
Here are some of the things that we know about Matthew. Yes, he's the author of the first uh, gospel. Uh, going back to the earliest manuscripts we have in church history, uh, every single one at the beginning will say the gospel according to Matthew at the top. So uh, there is strong church tradition as well that Matthew is the author of the first gospel. I think that is uh, almost certainly correct. And so Matthew is the author of this gospel. And in Mark's account of this story and in Luke's account, Matthew is called Levi. This is not uncommon. Simon is called Simon, and he's also called Peter, Cephas, Paul is called Paul and Saul, and John is called John and Mark and John Mark. And so in that world, people had one or two or even three names, and it's not uncommon to see that. What people guess is, Levi was probably the tribe he was from, perhaps, in Israel, the, the Levites, and he went by perhaps the name Levi. We don't know this for sure, but we, he probably went by the name Levi, and perhaps Jesus renamed him Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh, uh, after his conversion, as he renamed Simon Peter as well. Uh, again, these are things we're not sure of, but it's certainly possible. Uh, to give you a little bit about tax collectors, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that they have a bad reputation. They're always linked with sinners, and once Jesus in Matthew 18, or excuse me, Matthew 21, he links them with prostitutes. The worst of the worst is the category that tax collectors fall into. And let's just, let's just flesh this out a little bit more. Jesus says things like this in Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So he considers the tax collectors how they treat each other as the lowest conceivable moral bar, Jesus does in Matthew 5. In Matthew 18, uh, Jesus says about church discipline, when someone is eventually removed from church membership by a church vote, you tell it to the church, and then you're to treat them as what? A Gentile or a tax collector. That is someone who is not a part of the covenant community, who has betrayed the covenant community and is no longer considered part of that people. Um, so you see a very negative connection with tax collecting. Well, there were three kinds of uh, Th those who care about history right now are going to get really excited. The rest of us for the next two minutes are going to struggle, but here we go. Uh, R Roman law, there, there's many different ways that they collected taxes, but there were three major ways that the Romans would collect taxes. Once Rome became an empire, it was very hard to keep up with taxation. You only had so many Roman officials to keep up with an enormous, an enormous empire around the Mediterranean basin, and so they would farm out tax policy to people who were in the local areas. But there were three major kinds. Number one was a land tax uh, that was taxation on your crops. And so your land would be taxed based on how your crop did each year, and there was a way in which that would be uh, dealt with, and those were often exorbitant in the way that they, they were taxed. Number two was a head tax. That is a, a tax on each person, each head. Right? Each individual would be taxed a certain amount, usually uh, one day's wages a year, one denarius a year. But here's the one that's relevant, because this is the one that everyone thinks Matthew was. Uh, this is the tolls and duties tax. And this is almost certainly, I mean, I'm virtually sure that this is the kind of tax that Matthew would have been involved with in his tax booth. This is about the transportation of goods, border crossings, seaports, etc. One writer said, these were collected at ports and at tax offices near city gates from persons engaged in commerce. Uh, not only ports, but boundaries of cities and tetrarchies charged customs duties, uh, raising the price of imported goods. Now, this is what Matthew, no doubt, was involved with here in Capernaum, and uh, it's interesting to note that um, the way it would work was local people would bid before Roman leaders to get the ability to be tax collectors in their region. They would bid on it. So say the Romans say, we need a million dollars to use our money, a million dollars of taxes from this region this year. 
And so you might have almost a firm get together. A group of local people would get together and they would put the money together. They'd give it to the Romans up front. They would say, okay, we will give you $1 million. And another group says, no, we will give 1.1 million. They say, we will give 1.2 million. And they would buy for it. And whoever has the highest bid, they would become, they would, they would essentially be, the tax would be farmed out to this local group. Now imagine how loved you would be if you were in one of these groups. Because if you're a Jewish person living in the first century, we just went through Ezra. Do the, do, do the, does Israel love when a foreign uh, pagan uh, people is oppressing and ruling over them? Do they love that? No, and understandably not. When the Assyrians rule over them, this is not a good thing. When the Babylonians or when the Persians, it's not a great thing, right? And so now it's the Romans who are ruling over them and often overly taxing them and oppressing them in many ways. And so the last thing you want is for one of your fellow Jews to have this vying for the taxation ability and then to win and then to now be taxing you, their neighbor, and here's how taxing would work. You could often, the tax rules were so complicated uh, they were so hard to follow that if you were a, a tax collector, you could just simply kind of make up your own rules as you went. You say, it's uh, 3% this week. I thought it was 2%. Well, the rules have changed. It's now 3.5%. And well, I want to appeal this to somebody. Well, good luck if you want to appeal injustice. It was very hard. So the tax collectors could exploit you rampantly. And that's why they were known for being thieves. Remember Zacchaeus? Every time I say his name, I'm tempted to go into the children's song, but I won't do that right now. He was a, he was a wee little man. And uh, up in the sycamore tree, he sees Jesus. Jesus wants to go to his house. And remember what happens? He says, uh, first of all, he was a ch chief tax collector in uh, Jericho. So he had major authority over this, these groups. He would have been extremely wealthy. And what does he say? When he meets Jesus and he's, he's truly converted, he says, I will restore fourfold all that I have defrauded. What was Zacchaeus doing? He was stealing from his kinsmen. And he has to restore fourfold of his, own, of his own desire because of his repentance back. So Zacchaeus was stealing from his local uh, neighborhood uh, people in the area. And um, also we're told in a Jewish book, the Mishnah, which was written down around the year 200 after Jesus, but it, it dates back to a lot of the sayings to the time of Christ. We're told in the Mishnah that tax collectors, if they entered a house, would defile it like a leper, make it richly unclean, just to have a tax collector in your home would, would richly impurify your house. Number two, tax collectors were not allowed to give testimony in Jewish court of law. They were so despised by the Jewish people. And number three, this is, this is an, I won't make comment about this, but both the more conservative and the more liberal side within the Jewish world, they both agreed, and they didn't agree on a lot of stuff, they both agreed that you could lie to tax collectors about taxation. They, they agreed you could lie. I'm not going to say that that's right, but that's what they agreed. They said, you can lie to these people because they are so corrupt that we're not even worthy of giving them the truth because they'll rip us off. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just telling you that's what the people said in the Mishnah. So can you, you get a sense of how the tax collectors were, were viewed? Phil Riken writes this. Because Jewish tax collectors collaborated with the Romans, they were considered traitors by their people. They're supporting the oppressors with our money. Number two, because they collected more than they had any right to take, they were considered robbers, which they were. Number three, and because they had so much contact with Gentiles, they were considered unclean. So tax collectors were traitors to their own people. They were robbers and corrupt morally, greedy, stealing. And number three, they were considered unclean uh, because of their contact with Gentiles. Remember John the Baptist during his ministry, Luke chapter 3, some tax collectors come to John. Remember the baptism of repentance? And they asked John, what should we do to be working repentance? And remember John's response? They said, teacher, what should we do? John simply said to the tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Did they have a problem with skimming off the top? 
Yes, that was a rampant problem that ran through with the majority of the tax collectors from that time period. Phil Riken continues, quote, Yet what we should see in Matthew, so what are we supposed to do with all this? Yet we should see in Matthew, what, what we should see in Matthew is our own sinful selves. Because until we come to Christ, we are like Matthew in many ways. We sit in the toll booth of our sin, trying to get as much as we can for ourselves in this world, and not caring too much what we have to do to other people to get it. We will keep sitting in our sin, going about our business, until Jesus interrupts us the way he interrupted Matthew. So let's look here more carefully at our passage, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is fascinating to think about. Um, Other people have made the same point. Matthew really gives us a picture of conversion in some sense right here. He's sitting in the tax booth of his sin. His occupation is full of sin and greed and theft and robbery. That's what his life is about. He cares more about money than he does about his fellow kinsmen. He does not care about you. He cares about his bank account. And here's Matthew just living in his sin. And the Lord Jesus walks by. He makes eye contact with Matthew. He walks over. And what does Jesus do? He calls Matthew to follow him and to be one of the 12 apostles of the early church. So Jesus personally chose Matthew. There wasn't a discipleship tryout day. You know, who wants to be an apostle? America's got great apostles. And that that was not going on. And they come out and parade themselves with all their good accomplishments. And Matthew goes, well, look what I can do. No, 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 no. No, this is not what was happening. Jesus walks up to the least likely, most despised, most despicable, wicked man who loves sin and loves evil and loves wealth more than people and does not love God because his God is his money. Jesus walks right up to him and Jesus personally chooses him and he sovereignly calls him to himself and says, Matthew, it's time for you to stand up from your tax booth. It's time for you to leave that entire way of life behind and it's time for you to come follow me. In John 15, he would later say to all of his apostles, and he excludes Judah, he qualifies Judas as a betrayer, but he says to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that would last. So we see a picture of ourselves here in Matthew as Jesus calls him to himself. Point number two, Matthew follows Jesus. Maybe just as surprising is Matthew's response. And Matthew... Perhaps it's Matthew's modesty uh, that, that, that leads Matthew to say this. Matthew just says, and he rose and followed him. Very brief, very simple. But Luke gives us a little more detail on the same story. Luke says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. See, the call to follow Jesus was a call to leave behind his previous way of life entirely. He left everything and followed Jesus leaving everything. You understand that as much as this job was despised, there were many people who wanted the job of a tax collector. When Matthew rises from his tax booth and when he walks away, he is leaving behind his job security and his finances entirely. And no doubt in a short matter of days, his slot will be filled by someone else who is eager to take that position. This is not one of those things where he could go back and pick up where he left off if he gets tired of following Jesus in a couple of weeks. No, this was an absolute cutting off of his previous life and an absolute entering into a new way of life of following the Lord Jesus. Reminds me of Paul. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So Matthew follows Jesus. What does that mean for, for us today? We can't follow Jesus around today physically, as they could then. Following Jesus means, well, what exactly? Following Jesus means what Jesus says in the Great Commission, to observe all that He has commanded us, to be trained in obedience to Jesus, to obey all of His commands, to submit ourselves fully to Scripture, to not follow our own way, our own preference, but instead to submit ourselves to Christ, to His regulations, His laws, and His commands for us in Scripture, uh, submitting ourselves to all of what God commands us and to uh, not compromise with the culture, but to love God, His character, and His truth. What does this mean for Matthew? This meant new life, new community, new laws, new Lord, new Savior, new purpose, new goals, values, new eternal destiny for for Matthew. What what does that mean for us? Uh, If if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, uh, it can be sometimes frightening to think about becoming a Christian. Sometimes people say, I just don't know. I'm scared of becoming a Christian because I don't know what that would do to my life. I I know that it would be a massive change, and there's a fear element because I don't know exactly what that would mean. I know it's going to mean giving up certain things. It's going to be embracing new things. Suddenly you go, okay, I had a certain community I was around that did not love the Lord. Now I'm going to need a new community of friends to be around who love the Lord. What is going to happen? And I want to say, whatever fears you have about trusting Jesus Know that the Lord will abundantly meet all of our needs, and there is nothing to be afraid of. He gives us life and joy and forgiveness. But what about those of us who know the Lord already, walk with Jesus for perhaps many years, some of us in the room, some of us perhaps many decades? Are there areas in our life where we are not fully submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's what I mean. Touched on this in Sunday school, but we'll mention this now. Are there areas where... Uh, An old illustration would be, well, we're trying to allow sin in some, what we think of as a modest or small form, to dwell in a corner of our life. Is there a small area of compromise in our life? Might not be anything headline grabbing, might not be anything that looks particularly radical, but is there an area in our life where we know there's a small degree of real compromise? I don't know what that might be for you, but is there an area where we're allowing something we know is not what God would have us to do or to be about, and we're allowing it some space in our mind, in our heart, in our life? What would that be for you? Is there an area where the Lord would ask you to repent and to truly submit that to the Lord, to repent of it and to follow Him more fully? Let's move to point number three. I want to spend a little extra time on the third uh, point here. Matthew invited his friends to meet Jesus. This is verses 10 through 13. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, This this is interesting. Again, 
Bringing in Luke's account, we get a little extra detail. Maybe Matthew in his modesty leaves this out, but we get a little detail from Luke. We're told that not just was there a feast or some some sort of gathering, we're told in Luke 5.29, Levi himself made Jesus a great feast in his own house. So uh, Levi, Matthew, has been so transformed by Jesus, he hosts a party at his own house. And it's a great feast. Now remember back then, you know this from the prodigal son story, having delicacies like meat in a party was a big deal. Uh, This sounds like it was a great feast. It was a big party, a major event, and many people were invited. So what does Matthew do? He begins to follow Jesus and he invites all of his unbelieving friends to come to the party to meet Jesus. He's been friends and working with tax collectors. He knows many sinners in the area. He was one of them up until this moment when the Lord has begun to transform him. And what happens? He invites all of his unbelieving friends to this party because you've got to meet the Lord Jesus. Now, I will say there's different ways to apply this, but I know for numbers of you in this room, when you first become a believer, especially if you're a little older in life and you become a believer, you have lots of non-Christian friends automatically, and they know you. They know you as a non-believer, and now they know you as a believer, and they're looking at you going, what in the world is wrong with this person? They have completely changed. They're a completely different person. I cannot figure them out. I I used to talk to him about these things. He won't even talk about that anymore. He wants to talk about Jesus now, and frankly, it might be a little bit troublesome to people. They're going, "What, what, what has happened? And I will say, if you're a relatively new convert and you still have just a large group of people who've known you recently to have changed, you have an incredible opportunity, just like Matthew did, which is he says, guys, you've got to come with me and meet the man who has just changed my life. Come to my house tonight. We're going to have a huge party. The, The Lord Jesus is there. He's bringing his disciples. You've got to hear him speak. You've got to meet Jesus. And the amazing thing is that Jesus goes. Now, I know we're so used to Jesus spends time with Sinners, we know that. But we're so used to this. But imagine you're not used to that part of the story. God in the flesh, the God of Israel has taken on a human form. He is the God man, Jesus Christ. He is walking amongst us. Where is he gonna go? I mean, I mean, seriously, act like we don't know the answer for a moment. Where is God in the flesh gonna go? You think he's gonna go to the most righteous, the most godly, the most holy people in the world, and that's where God would spend his time. This would be absolutely stunning. Jesus goes, I don't want to be irreverent, it's like the frat house party. He goes to the place where all the people where you don't necessarily want to be around. He goes to the place that's the least likely, the least respectable. He goes where all the people who are hated in society are gathered, the tax collectors and sinners. There may have been prostitutes, there may have been who knows what in this particular place. And they've come with Matthew to his house. And Jesus says, that's exactly where I want to go. That's exactly where I want to be. Say, is Jesus condoning sin? Is he just casual about sin? No. Jesus is no more casual about sin than a doctor is casual about disease. A doctor shows up and the doctor needs to be and wants to be and seeks to be around who? Ill and sick people. That's who the doctor pursues to be around. The doctor spends time every day around sick and ill people. Why? It's not because the doctor likes and supports illness. It's because the doctor, a good doctor, hates illness hates disease, and has the means whereby those diseases and illnesses can be done away with, and where those illnesses and diseases can go away. And so a doctor spends time around sick people, not because he likes sickness or she likes sickness, but because he hates it, and he wants to get rid of it. And so the Lord Jesus spends time around sinners, not because he loves their sin, but because he loves them, and he hates the sin that is destroying them, and he wants to get rid of what is doing so much harm to his image bearers, and he spends time at this party with tax collectors and sinners. This must have been a strange experience for the disciples to be around for. 
Look at Matthew 10, just right over the page. Matthew 10, let's look at a few names of disciples. Just really one is what I want to focus on. If you look at Matthew 10, you look at verse 3, you'll notice um, in the middle of that verse, you've got Matthew the tax collector. And look at verse 4. You've got Simon who? Simon the zealot. I just have to wonder what the first meeting was like between these two individuals. If you remember in first century Jew, first century Judaism, you had Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes. You also had the zealots. The zealots, which became a much more violent group after the time of Jesus, they actually led to the revolt against Rome that caused Jerusalem to be destroyed in the Jewish war of the 60s. That was led by the Jewish zealots. They were ready to pick up a sword and do what? Kill the Romans. Okay, that's the zealots. Okay. One of Jesus' disciples is a former zealot. He is a, one who is looking, he's a political revolutionary. He wants to take swords and get the pagan power Rome out of Jerusalem, get them off our backs, let's kill Roman soldiers, and let's get our independence. That's Simon's background. That's his belief system. Matthew is supporting the Roman government by raising taxes from other Jewish friends. Now, do you see how different these two individuals are? Matthew is supporting the Roman oppression. Simon wants to kill the Romans. Do you see? Zealot, tax collector. These are the most opposite kind of Jewish people you could possibly find in the first century And who does Jesus choose? He chooses a zealot and he chooses a tax collector. And they both repent of their past ways and they enter into the 12 and they become no doubt close friends and disciples of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? There might be someone in this church where you say, if it wasn't for Jesus, I would probably never be friends with this person. I I would have nothing naturally in common with this person. Uh, There would just be no connection point at all between me and this person or these people over here. But because Jesus has saved me and Jesus has saved them, we have the most important thing in our life in common together. We can find unity in Christ despite the fact that our personal tastes on various things may be radically different. Praise God. I think His glory is shown all the more when people of diverse interests have deep love and unity in Christ when Christ is the glue that holds us together and nothing else in this world holds us together. Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector, they become close associates and friends together amongst Jesus' 12, and the only thing holding them together is Jesus. Otherwise, they would hate each other. No doubt before Christ, Simon the zealot would have literally thought to do violence against someone like Matthew the tax collector, and now they are unified in Christ. Just look at the way in which the Lord Jesus can transform our lives. Now, I want to mention something. Matthew includes something that the other gospels don't. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Then he quotes from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, in Luke's version, he says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's not miss what he's calling them to. It's to a transformation of life. Well, what is this quotation from Hosea? What does it mean? It had to be a little bit, there's a little jab in what Jesus is saying. Yes, there is. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, have you, uh, have you read Hosea before? Is kind of the feeling of what he's saying. Uh, go and learn what it means. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I mean, this, there's a jab here. He's saying, you guys are supposed to be the Bible experts. Haven't you read Hosea 6, 6? Don't you know what God cares about, what God, what God values? And in the context of Hosea, I know it's maybe foggy in our minds. Hosea is dealing with Israel during a time of great apostasy. And here's what you find out in Hosea 6. 
There was a lack of starvation over the knowledge of God. People did not truly know God, but here's what they still, here's what they did. They knew how to obey the outward tabernacle sacrifices and observances. So here's what, here's what you have. You have the shell without the heart. That's what's happening in Isaiah's time. These people are going through all the motions of temple ceremonies, all the festivals and new moons and all those things. They're offering all the right animal sacrifices, but they've forsaken steadfast love and faithfulness. They've forsaken mercy. They've forsaken a love for God and neighbor. They have all the shell down. They've got all their Bible memorization. They've got all their things that they're doing outwardly, but the inward heart is dead. They've gone apostate. And Jesus says to the Pharisees of his day, you guys are no different than apostate Israel in Hosea's day. You have the shell down so well with your Sabbath observance and with your not working on that day, and you know how to keep all these regulations and rules, but you don't love those who need grace. You've got no mercy. You've got no love for God and neighbor, truly. You have the shell, but not the heart. You're missing out on the most important thing. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, steadfast love, and not sacrifice. Don't neglect the heart of what God has called us to be about. Now, I want to move toward a conclusion here. And think about this. In this story, there is no one who hates sin more than the Lord Jesus And at the same time, there is no one who loves sinners more than the Lord Jesus. Those two things are true of him at the same time as he gravitates towards sinners. I have to wonder, can't read their minds. If I was one of the disciples at this moment, I would be sinfully probably tempted to question what Jesus is doing. And no doubt they're wondering, Jesus, if you're this close and you're mingling, you're you're reclining at table at a party with the worst people in society. You are really calling into question yourself in this moment. That's why people are questioning Jesus. I, I can almost imagine the response being, if you think Jesus is doing something scandalous by sitting at a table with sinners, just wait a couple years and see how close Jesus will get to sinners. He's going to become sin for sinners on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus isn't just going to recline at table with sinners. He's going to take our sin onto himself and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So I want to close by reading an excerpt. It's a a long quote, so stick with me and then I'll I'll pray for us and we will sing again in just a moment. Uh, This is from a book by John Bloom. It is a it's a, I, I grant you it's a fictional story. I'm not claiming this is, this is a real story, but it's based on uh, what happened to Zacchaeus, the other tax collector. Listen to this. It's an imaginary story based on what Zacchaeus, no doubt, would have experienced after he repented and met Jesus. He writes this, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was converted, and he vowed to give back fourfold to anyone he had defrauded. Um, imagine a conversation that might have resulted when he returned the money. Dad, there's a man at the door. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Judah's face flushed with sudden anger. What does he want? Judah moved past his daughter, clenching his jaw. He opens the door and he exploded towards Zacchaeus. What? What do you want? Zacchaeus reeled slightly from the verbal blow. I'm here to return something to you, Judah. What do you mean? Zacchaeus held out a small money bag. Judah was suspicious. This man had robbed half of Jericho collecting taxes for Tiberius. No one was more conniving and slippery with words. Fearing some kind of setup, Judah did not move. What are you doing, Zacchaeus? Cynicism hits through Judah's teeth. And then Zacchaeus says, I'm dismembering my idol. 
Judah's fiery glare turned into stony bewilderment. What are you talking about? Zacchaeus said, Judah, I know how strange this must sound, and you have every reason not to trust me. I'm here because I've defrauded you. I've charged you more taxes than Rome required, and I've kept them for myself. I know that you and everyone else knows that, but I've come to ask your forgiveness for sinning against you like that and to make restitution. That's what's in this bag. Zacchaeus held it out again. This time, Judas tentatively took it. He looked inside. There's a lot in here. It's got to be more than you overcharged me. Yes, it's four times what I overcharged you. I've got all the records, you know. Zacchaeus smiled. Why are you giving me four times what you owe me? Judas's distrust was not dispelled. I'm keeping a vow. I promised Jesus that I would repay everyone I defrauded fourfold. You mean Rabbi Jesus? How do you know him? I do now. He's in town, as you know. And the other day, I wanted to get a glimpse of him. And he called to me, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. Judah gave him a puzzled look. Zacchaeus said, I know, I know. How did he know my name? Jesus, so, so Jesus and his disciples come to my house. And in a matter of minutes, my world falls apart and comes together. Judah, when I was a boy, I was in awe of what I thought money did for people. It seemed to open all kinds of doors to power and pleasure. So I vowed that whatever it took, I was going to be rich. And I kept that vow. Back then, I had no idea how empty being rich would be. But up until two days ago, I figured it was still better than the alternative. But as I sat in my home with Jesus and his disciples, who have nothing, nothing but God, I've never seen happier people in my life. And as Jesus spoke, it was like his words were alive. My heart burned with a longing for God I had never felt before and with a deep shame that I had traded him for money. Then it hit me. I'm poor, not rich. They had God. I had a dead idol, money. They were rich. I was no more than a beggar. They were free, but the only doors money ever opened for me led to lonely dungeons. My world as I had known it fell apart. And there sat Jesus looking at me as if he could read me like a scroll. Everything in me just wanted to follow him. I wanted the forgiveness and the salvation he's been preaching about. For the first time in my life, I wanted God more than anything. Suddenly, it was like life never made more sense. Before I knew it, I was on my feet, vowing in front of everyone that, well, I would dismember my idol. Give away your money? Right, well, some of it is your money. This time, Judah smiled. And here's the ending. Later, Judah's wife, this is the guy who got the money back, Later, Judah's wife found him staring at a little money bag on the table. She said, what's that? A tax refund. A what? I think we need to go hear Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Jesus, why? I think that we are poor. Again, an imaginary story, but it makes, I think, a very biblical point. When the transformation of life happens and others see it, they can be greatly impacted by it. So let's use our lives and our witness, our words and our testimony uh, to lead others closer to the Lord. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you would show us ourselves in this story, that we were in the tax booth of our sin, whatever our sin may have been, and you personally chose us. You walked up to us. You called us through your gospel. You made us alive when we were dead, and you enabled us to willingly forsake all to follow you. And God, you get all the glory for that, and we get the great joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. We know that we are rich in Christ with spiritual wealth that no money could ever buy. And God, I pray that you would use us to make an impact on others around us, whether we're recently converted or we've been a Christian for all of our lives, for much of our lives. God, I pray that you would use us to impact others with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I pray you'd be glorified through this people. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.